Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today I'm joined by my good friend, Associate Professor of Surgery uh, in both the Division of Vascular Surgery and Cardiology at Emory University School of Medicine. He's the Chief Vascular and Intervascular Surgery at Grady Memorial Hospital. He's dual trained, triple trained actually, triple threat, general surgery, surgical critical care and vascular surgery. And we're really thankful that he had time to talk with us today about uh, peripheral vascular injury evaluation and diagnosis. Ravi, thanks for joining us. Hey, Joe. Good to hear from you, my friend. And uh, thanks for inviting me to do this. Yeah. So, Robbie, I, the the whole impetus behind this particular podcast is that, you know, I, I always struggle. I, we both know and everybody knows there's lots of tools and approaches that can be utilized to diagnosis and characterize peripheral vascular injury. And from the physical exam to contrast studies to ultrasound, we've got a lot of adjuncts that we can utilize to pretty expediently optimize management for patients with these injuries. But, you know, each of these adjuncts has limitations that are real and, and some are probably underutilized and underappreciated because people just aren't familiar with them. So I wanted to talk with uh, you today about this and um, and see if you could help us figure out where these things fit, what are some of the limitations, and what are some of the hope and promise of some of these technologies. So let's start with the tried and true, if you don't mind. Let's start with the physical exam, right? So we can learn a lot. We should learn a lot just from a simple physical exam, and a lot can be actually be ascertained from a simple pulse exam. But where does the pulse exam kind of fail us? Uh, are there scenarios where an intact pulse can be misleading? Uh, does an absent pulse in a particular location always mean there's a vascular injury that needs treatment present? Um, what, what? Help me fill in the blanks here on this. Where's physical exam strengths yeah. and, and the weaknesses? So, if I may, I think, and obviously you know this better than anyone, but it bears saying is I think first and foremost, the most important thing that we don't necessarily spend enough time talking about is that blunt and penetrating trauma are two completely different textbooks, if you will. They're just very, very different disease processes. One is local and one is systemic. And I, I open with that because while I think anyone who practices trauma thinks that's obvious and self-evident, one of the things we notice is that folks who don't do this sort of living on a regular basis want some sort of streamlined algorithm where you do X, Y, and then Z. And you have to sort of set the stage by saying, well, is it blunt trauma or penetrating trauma? And I think that overrides everything. And I think just the workup and all the different tools should be analyzed within that context. I know that's a little bit off base from what your question was, but I think it's an important way to set the stage. To circle back around, if this is someone with penetrating trauma, you know, I, I don't take trauma call anymore. I don't run a trauma bay anymore. But when I did, if someone got shot in the leg, I was feeling for the pulse in the foot. And honestly, if they didn't have a pulse in the foot, our yard length of stay was about three seconds, right? There wasn't a whole lot else that you needed outside of a pulse exam, maybe accompanied by a Doppler insonation to at least confirm there were no signals. But if there truly was nothing in the foot from an exam standpoint with either a pulse or a signal, you don't need any other information. Assuming that the gunshot wounds are all below the groin crease, you get an x-ray on the way up to the trauma bay or, in, or up to the operating room or in the operating room to sort of figure out what's going on with the bone, and then you operate on that patient. There doesn't need to be a CTA. There almost never needs to be a CTA in, in uh, penetrating trauma. And you don't even need a formal ABI in my mind. Blood trauma, though, I think is a lot more challenging. And I think it's a lot more challenging because pulse exam can be very misleading in blood trauma, where um, diminished pulses or diminished ABI can often be related to things that aren't direct vascular injury, whether that's vasospasm, 
um, PAD, which is going to be more common in a blunt trauma population than a penetrating trauma population. Uh, bony disruption, just causing some torquing on the vessel that's not going to require an operation. But for a lot of reasons, physical exam is going to be a little bit less helpful in the blunt trauma situation than the penetrating situation. Okay. Good stuff. So the pulse exam, um, let's do one better. Uh, you talked a little bit about, at least for extremity injuries right here. So the ankle brachial index or the ABI or the brachial brachial index, BBI, or some people even use the injured extremity index, right? Um, they all essentially compare normal limb to a abnormal limb. But how is what are the nuts and bolts of doing this and what values are important? And when in what instances do you, do you find it useful? Yeah, so I think everyone needs to know how to do this, right? And I think um, whether you're a frontline trauma person, an ED doc, someone who mood lights, I think being able to take a good ABI is really important um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think it has more value in penetrative trauma than blood trauma. Um, but both of them, it's a simple thing that should be done really early on in the valuation of the patient. As soon as that patient's primary survey is intact, it should be part of any secondary survey. I think having the right cuff size is obviously important, but you, you make do with what you have in a trauma situation. And you, I think you take into mind that in patients who are at one extreme of size or another may have falsely um, leading ABIs due to cuff um, uh, arm or leg mismatch. I think it's a lot more valuable in the lower extremity than the upper extremity where we have a significant amount of both retrospective and prospective data assessing its accuracy and determining uh, injury. I think the number that we use is really important. And when, when we trained, Joe, I think the number was always 0.9. Yeah. Right? And 0.9 was eaten into our brains. Um, and I think more and more we're seeing, again, this discrepancy between blood and penetrating. Where 0.9 for penetrating may be a really good number. But for blunt trauma, uh, you know, the Harborview guys had a great paper last year um, showing that they had not had a single blunt injury in their hospital that required operative repair for anyone with an ABI greater than 0.6. And when that paper was written, we did a very informal analysis of our last 10 years at Grady to see if our numbers matched up, and they did. We've not had a single blunt injury that required something to be done to fix it that had an ABI greater than 0.6. And we need to really get that message out there, I think, that an ABI of 0.8 in a blunt trauma patient is not the same as an ABI of 0.8 in a penetrating trauma patient for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Most of those folks just have a certain amount of vasospasm or vessel torquing that when the bone is reduced or they're warmed up or they're resuscitated, it gets a lot better. Um, I don't, you know, I, I still tell our residents they, they need to know how to do an ABI in all patients, but honestly, well, on the blunt trauma patients, I don't put as much value in it because there's just too many confounding factors. Um, for the penetrating trauma patients, I let it dictate all management, quite honestly. If you're less than, than 0.9, you're getting something done, you know, and thankfully it's usually not like a 0.7 situation. It's going to be zero or greater than 0.9 in most cases. How about you? Do you do a similar practice? You know, I do. I, I rely, um, I actually ask our residents and fellows to get ABIs whenever they're possible. I think it's a skill set that needs to be nurtured and remembered and passed on to each generation. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I, 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 every, I tell my residents, every patient that I've seen that has had a miscavascular injury that we've had to circle back in and find, uh, even if it's a total occlusion, they always, quote unquote, had a pulse at the time of initial evaluation because <laughs> you feel your own pulse, right? So yeah. 
it's I, I like to support that pulse exam with and I play guitar a little bit. I got calluses on my hands. And quite honestly, my wife will tell you, I got meat paws anyway. So I'm not I'm probably don't have the, the, the tactile sensation that most vascular surgeons would wish. So I like the audible Doppler at least. And then an ABI is a nice number you can follow in a serial fashion before and after reduction. Um, you know what a baseline is beforehand. So that's kind of the way that I skin. I, I don't see much in the way of a downside to getting an ABI in just about every patient who can tolerate it. But that that allows me to segue here a little bit uh, from ABIs because not every patient can get an ABI. If I have a tibial fracture, I, it's hard, I have a hard time looking at the patient and saying, you know, sir, I'm going to put a blood pressure cuff on your tibial fracture that already hurts <laughs> and I'm going to squeeze it up as hard as I can until I obliterate all the pulse and I'm going to see what your ABI is. It just doesn't make sense. So, there is another adjunct we use a lot in vascular surgery that when I talk about it in the setting of trauma, people look at you like they've never heard it or they didn't think about it in that context from their vascular rotations. And that's toe pressures. Um, Do you I use these quite often, again, as another supporting numeric tool that can be followed serially and provide some information. What's your thought on toe pressures? And let's say that tibial fracture, you've got three vessels that are potentially compromised. It has some downside because you can't really do it at bedside. It does require a technician to come around. But even when you get at more advanced angiographic imaging that has that Radio, you know, the radiologist hedge cannot rule out injury, maybe vasospasm. Um, what's your what's your approach to toe pressures? Yeah, that's a great point. We don't use it the same way for acute processes like we do for chronic processes. And I think it's primarily for the reason you mentioned it. People don't think about it, but B, we don't keep the right size cuffs in the trauma band, right? So we don't keep toe cuffs around. We got to get the tech to come down and do a formal vascular study. And so obviously it's really only an option for middle of the day stuff that is not acutely limb threatening, right? Where you're making a subtle call. And so my experience with the injury pattern you're describing, the very distal extremity, usually mangled-ish with a bunch of open fractures and the concern is that the tibial vessels are out, is to a certain extent, same exact conceptually, but a different uh, way of looking at it. I just follow their physical exam, right? I, I follow things that we haven't talked about yet, like cap refill, motor function, sensory function, and pain. And I think that's the stuff that, particularly when you're not doing a lot of vascular work, you tend to skip over, right? You take it for granted and you start talking about pulses and signals. Um, but, but these other things, these subjective signs of ischemia, I think are so important when it's at a level where clearly if it was up in the thigh, we would have better ways of evaluating distal perfusion. But when it gets down towards the ankle, I think it ends up being more subtle stuff. And in my case, that's um, subjective physical exam findings. And in your case, it's toe pressures. But I think they get at the same idea. Some tiebreaker, if you will, in trying to figure out whether a distal revascularization is actually going to make a difference or if the patient is, quote, good enough as is, right? We've always sort of said, well, if you're perfused and you have one tibial vessel, then your foot should be fine. And while it may be fine today and tomorrow, that doesn't mean it's going to be fine 10 years from now. Or it doesn't mean it's going to be fine when orthopedics puts hardware in that has a risk of getting infected or not union. And so I think we do need to look at some of these more subtle things as opposed to maybe how we did things 20 years ago where it was ABI 9.9, nothing to do have at it. 
Well. Yeah, no, I, you know, and I, I, another simple tool that we use every day on every trauma patient is a pulse ox on that extremity. If you can yeah. get a pulse ox signal, you're not frankly ischemic, so you've got some time to do some additional investigations. Um, so let's talk about some of those additional investigations. So we've got other studies, and and what what are their roles and the pros and cons? And I'll we'll just hit them. I'm going to shotgun style shoot them at you, yeah. and you tell me what you think. Duplex studies. Yeah, that's a great place to start, and I think we're seeing an emergence of it as a, as something that people are comfortable with, um, have access to a tech who can do a more formal study. It, it, you run the trouble of patient discomfort that you alluded to earlier, where putting a probe on an area that hurts is challenging. So to a certain extent, you're looking at things away from the injury itself, whether that be distal perfusion, where maybe a handheld Doppler isn't as exact. And I'll tell you the other thing that I always use it for at the bedside of these trauma patients is taking a quick look at the superficial veins. As I start planning out who's going to get operatively fixed, I love knowing what the status of the small saphenous is. Is this something I can do in the prone position? Is the great saphenous pretty good on the contralateral side, ipsilateral side? And start thinking ahead about where I'm going to start making decisions, particularly in some of our more obese trauma patients. So I think it gives a lot of good information. I think for patients with large wounds, it becomes less helpful. I think for patients who have bony disruption, who are very tender at the site of injury, it just becomes a little bit more challenging to do on certain patients. But otherwise, it's a phenomenal test that can be repeated, doesn't really hurt most people, is non-invasive, etc. And I think it's a skill set that we as vascular surgeons, we are, we're trained in our training to use ultrasound in our own hands and our own interpretation. Um, I think your, your typical even high-end trauma surgeon was not born or trained in an era or has the skill set to do that. So they are relying on the tech that's not always going to come to the trauma bay in the next 10 minutes. So um, that's true. What about, so a little CTA for extremity things, right? So this is another one. We scan everybody these days, Ravi. You can't get in or out of our trauma center without getting a, you know, a comprehensive scan from head to toe almost. What's the utility of CTA for extremities? Yeah, I had peeve of mine, and I think we're probably going to be on the same page, having trained in the same era. So, grossly overused for extremity trauma from a vascular standpoint. In my mind, it has almost no role for diagnosis in penetrative trauma patients. In general, physical exam is enough to tell you where the injury is. I will use it for penetrating trauma patients in very specific instances. I will use it for multi-level gunshot wounds, which often is a shotgun wound because localization can be challenging. And I, I get that there's gonna be a artifact from pellets and other things, but I still can figure out where the injury is to minimize your incision, quite honestly. And geography could do the same thing in that case. I also use it in the rare circumstance of a very long axis gunshot wound. And so these folks who just get shot at weird angles where there's a hole in the upper thigh and there's a hole down in the distal calf and there's no intervening missile, unless I have an obvious hematoma or external bleeding to tell me where to go, I'll use it in those cases in stable patients whose limb is immediately threatened for localization. But for the purposes of making the diagnosis, incredibly overused, very unnecessary. I mean, I think we've all heard of litigation stories where someone goes who's um, in extremis to the CTA with a penetrating extremity wound. That's crazy. We, I heard of a 
case um, from a litigation standpoint where there was a tourniquet in place after a gunshot wound. And the trauma surgeon literally went into the CAT scanner, deflated the tourniquet, ran the scan, and reinflated the tourniquet while the patient bled. Right? These are crazy, crazy concepts that have emerged with the ubiquitous use of CTA. The blunt trauma? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say, I was, you're getting to blunt trauma. Fire away. Yeah, blunt trauma, different story, right? So to me, blunt trauma almost always is going to the scanner anyways if they're in reasonable hemodynamic status for their head or their torso. And so the, the additional trip isn't really an issue. I think there where you see confounding factors like vasospasm and vessel torquing that you don't see in the penetrating circumstances that makes physical exams slightly less appealing. I think it's not uncommon to have bilateral extremity injuries, right, from, from blunt trauma. And so there's the appeal of being able to run both legs at the same time. Um, we, you'll often, you know, you'll get this scan and it'll be slightly suboptimal. And as surgeons, I think we almost always say, well, it was run poorly or the tech messed up. And those aren't really things in my mind. The, the scan is not hard to run. You just push the button, right, and it runs. It's almost never the tech's fault in my mind. Rather, we should always be thoughtful of circumstances where CTA is slightly less helpful. The obvious examples are heart failure or big aneurysms where contrast can't get down. Those aren't as prevalent in the trauma population. What does happen in the trauma population is low-grade compartment syndrome where you start seeing resistance to flow just because of swelling in the calf or a fracture or what have you. And so you lose the ability of that contrast bolus to go all the way down. And so we have to be comfortable with looking at scans that have suboptimal contrast bolus and still being able to call injury just because you don't see obvious extravasation or you don't see an obvious intraluminal defect doesn't mean you can't still tell if there's an injury. I think a lot of us who are experienced can look at a non-contrast CAT scan and make a reasonable guess about whether someone has vascular trauma or not, right? You're looking for things like loss of the tissue planes, evident hematoma, layering of stuff that are, is around the vessel. Um, all these sort of things have to be taken into account. When you start looking at these things yourself and really looking at them, you can make a pretty good educated guess in blood trauma, whether someone has an injury or not. I think there's also a lot of overcalls. We've all been victim of these, right? Where it cannot rule out injury, particularly below the knee. And then you just got to start asking yourself, is it something that's clinically relevant? Or is it just a victim of modern imaging technology or vomit as we can call it? Yeah, I, you know, I think the most common scenario that I get is they call you after the scan has been done, right? So uh, I think the counter to the argument is if you look at like the, the work Anaba did and some, and we did a little bit of this in Houston too. Uh, if they do get a decent quality CTA, it's pretty good. It's certainly at excluding injury, um, and it obviates in some. You know, there's still places and still kind of old school surgeons that think you need an angiogram for everything. And now you're given two contrast loads. You and I work and live in environments where, well, let's just go get an angiogram. It's just easier. I can get multiplanar views. You don't have fragmentation pieces uh, compromising your view. That makes a lot of sense to me. But if they've already obtained a CTA, at least the studies that are out there state that they're, it's pretty good for excluding injury anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, yeah, a lot of times they happen before we get involved, but I, I think people know that we sort of raise an eyebrow when they're done for penetrating trauma, and we've tried to get that messaging back to our frontline folks in the ED and the trauma service. 
where hopefully we get some insight into, well, we're going straight to the operating room or we're going to go stop by the scanner for whatever reason. Um, I agree when the study's done, especially especially for blunt trauma, where there's not necessarily going to be a lot of artifact, you can tell a lot and you can figure out pretty quickly whether you need to do something or not. So let's move down. The ultimate, right, is operative exploration. Yeah. So who, how do you make the decision about who to simply take back for operative exploration? Who is going to have an imaging modality that's going to afford you, even if you know you have to go back for exploration, what additional information, even if it's a traditional angiogram, is going to be useful? Yeah. So for me, try to keep it as straightforward as possible. Penetrating trauma, hard signs of injury, not multi-level, not long access, not something above the groin crease, but straightforward, lower extremity penetrating trauma hard science goes, and the first thing that happens after their sleep is they get an incision. And that incision, you know, when I, depending on how big they are, how bad the hematoma is, I may make a separate incision for proximal control, but more and more, I tend to dive right in um, as I get older. Like, I don't, I don't usually mess around with a separate incision. You, you start to realize pretty quickly that your focus needs to move away from uh, restoring blood flow and losing blood flow to preserving soft tissue. But the long-term outcomes are all about, did the wound get infected or not? Is my vascular reconstruction infected? And so small incisions targeted right over where you can tell the injury is. That's obviously a um, very easy scenario. It's not that common scenario. Penetrating trauma, maybe some soft signs of injury, slightly diminished ABI, sure, CTA. Blunt trauma, unless they're immediately threatened from a limb or life standpoint, gets through the CAT scanner. Um, I tend to rely on ultrasound uh, as an adjunct for figuring out veins and uh, planning of incisions and so forth. Um, but I don't do a lot of traditional catheter angiography anymore, quite honestly, for trauma. And if I do, it's with the intent of stent grafting or embolizing something. Um, I don't do it for diagnostic purposes in most cases. Um, you know, the time it comes up is if I'm doing a blunt thoracic aortic injury and there's a concomitant leg fracture. I'll have a very low threshold for shooting the leg runoff while I have a sheath in place. Outside of that, I rarely put in a catheter just to do an angiogram nowadays. Um, it's almost always a patient who's gone to the operating room for a completely unrelated indication like a laparotomy. And there's some concern about the leg from a soft science standpoint. In that case, I'll shoot the runoff instead of taking him down to the scanner and then having to come up to the operator. But otherwise, I, I truly believe that CTA has come far enough that we can rely on it as the diagnostic test of choice above and beyond angiography. How about yourself, Jeff? You know, I do. Uh, I think angiography plays maybe a, a little bit larger role where I'm at. Now, I would say that the location probably plays some role. If you're getting down distal popliteal and down and you've got to figure you may have hard decisions to make about what options you're going to work with in terms of trifurcation, reconstruction, what I'm going to plug into. Um, and if you think it's going to be a very distal anastomosis that you're going to have to repair that you may want to shoot an angiogram at, I, I will often put a you know cath a small catheter in the groin uh, for angi angiogram initially and then as a completion. And I, I would do want to circle back on that because you probably have thought out the completion angiogram more than most folks. 
Um, but I, I do, I think we use probably a lot here at Shock Trauma. A lot of it is leveraging the capabilities that we have in our hybrid suite to obviate the need for CT. You know, let's not go to CT. Let's just go to hybrid suite, deal with the, the blunt in particular, the fracture and the angiogram and the vascular pair all in one setting, one environment. And I think the hybrid environment has changed and more aggressive utilization from a trauma perspective has changed my perspective on that. I think we can avoid the CT scan in a lot of folks and just get everything done with smaller aliquots of contrast uh, and more precisely at exactly the time we need it. That's It's just kind of, you know, a different practice pattern, I suppose, but that's kind of how we've adjusted. Um, we, we have a hybrid room. It has not become our go-to trauma room quite yet. I suspect it will be at some point, but for right now, it's not. And Yeah, I think, I guess if someone wasn't going to get a scan after blood trauma, Anyways, and so that's the thing that breaks it for me. If you're going to get the scan, anyways, and I hear your concerns about contrast, um, but I will fire back that I don't, you know, yes, putting a, a micropuncture in the groin is a low risk thing, but nothing is zero risk, obviously. Um, I, I'll do it, but I, I prefer if there's an opportunity for CTA again in blunt trauma only, not for penetrate, but blunt trauma only, to have gotten that CTA ahead of time. I think it answers a lot of the questions you mentioned. I think our ortho colleagues rely on CT of the knee in many cases to to um, provide some insight for bony repair. Nothing bothers me more when we skip to the CT and then immediately after the OR, we go and get a CT of the knee, right? Yeah. Like we, we've just done that before with a little bit of contrast and actually had some information that would have been helpful before the operator. So I think for those reasons, we, we've slanted heavily for CTA on the blood trauma patients. Yeah, I find that, you know, we have our own little protocol here that we use for our blunt trauma patients that affords enough contrast in the right spots to look from head basically down through pelvis. And when we try to add on extremities, oftentimes they either have to take the patient out and move them around or the contrast that gets down to the leg is almost universally, you, you know, you mentioned you can you don't want to blame it on the technician or the protocol, but it, it does happen. It's just not enough yeah. to get down there. So in those blunt trauma patients, I say, you know, get the head to pelvis. And they're going to go back to the OR anyway. Let's not try to make something a circus. Let's just shoot a quick diagnostic angio on the table in the hybrid room, which we use very aggressively here. I really do think it's the way of the future. And it, uh, but, um, you know, the, I think the, the capabilities, you know, don't you think t- to some degree in the mindset of the institution do play a role in, in your decision making in some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. So let's move. Um, you know, one of the questions I get often is uh, I'll get the call, right? You've gotten them too. Blunt injury and the, <coughs> excuse me, the perineal artery is out. And that's what you get called for. Yeah, they've got a posterior tibial and they've got an anterior tibial and I got good signals in the feet, but the radiologist is reading that the perineal artery is occluded. So that's, I, I, how many, uh, it's, a, it's a debate. It's had, there has been some data on this, but what do you, what's your approach to how many branches uh, below yeah. the knee do you need to, to maintain adequate kind of limb preservation options? So I think we need to rethink this as a field. I think isolated tibial injury is an interesting concept that historically we've all based it on either having one branch open into the foot or a clinically perfused foot and called it a day. And, you know, this population can be challenging to get long-term outcomes on, but there are clearly some number of patients who are managed non-operatively following isolated tibial injury who come back at some time interval with either an evident pseudoaneurysm or some ischemic syndrome like claudication. 
I think the pseudoaneurysms are usually pretty easy to figure out, quite honestly, especially in the calf. The physical exam can go a long ways, and seeing those patients in follow-up uh, can go a long ways. I think the harder one is trying to predict who's going to have long-term ischemic complications. Again, that can be claudication, but just as importantly as infection of bony hardware, non-unit of their underlying fracture, which ultimately are probably contributed to by lack of blood flow. I still generally am happy with one vessel runoff. But I'm rethinking that. And I think one of the things that we want to look at in as big a series as possible is what are the long-term outcomes of having multivessel tibial injury? And at what level, right? I think none of us would disagree. There's a complete difference in having an injury right above the ankle as opposed to right below the tibial plateau where you haven't had any of those branches develop. And I don't know the answer to that. I, 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 we still, generally speaking, in the absence of hard signs, um, with single vessel runoff that's intact and no obvious compartment syndrome, pseudoaneurysm, et cetera, et cetera, we tend to watch those folks. How about yourself? I, I'm much the same. I think, uh, you know, the, the adage, at least in the acute phase, one vessel runoff perf- perfuses the foot and keeps the foot attached to the leg. When you get in, we get a lot of complex injuries that get transferred here. Some of them require flaps coverage. Some of them have large soft tissue losses. Those are different stories. And um, I do think that there are times 24, 48 hours after the patient's resuscitated, you've now gotten a better exam on the limb. You have a better idea with your reconstructive team, your limb preservation team, however that's assembled at your institution, about what's going to be required. Um, Then I think that those are the phases where perhaps those single vessel runoffs that are okay become, well, let's maybe we should talk about doing a bypass to even more richly optimized perfusion to the distal limb because they're going to have a large healing burden, a flap that may be necessary. And um, those are the kind of discussions that are had 24, 48 hours later. Yeah, to walk back some of my earlier comments, we, we're very liberal with the use of angiography and anyone who's going to need a flap, especially if that flap is based off of a tibial inflow for the reasons you mentioned. You know, it's one thing to say there's no DP signal and the CTA and exam suggests that the AT is out, but where it goes out is actually pretty important. Yeah. If you have a AT that's injured in the middle of the leg, that serves as a great end-to-end inflow for any sort of free flap, right? That's that's a freebie for all intents and purposes. You don't care if it goes down from a native artery circulation standpoint, obviously it affects your flap, but it's a freebie. So we, we use angiography to make a lot of those decisions, generally speaking in a little bit of a delayed fashion, you know, a couple of days later, as you mentioned, once they've stabilized and vasospasm is less of a concern. Yeah, I, I, I maybe I do it a little bit more on the front end to get that information so you can have those discussions early and the planning early. But uh, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit. So we go in, we, we find an injury regardless of location, right? But we... How do we follow that injury? Uh, you know, some of these repairs are a little high risk. I, I would say all trauma repairs are a little high risk by virtue. You or I, if we're doing a vascular bypass for an atherosclerotic patient, that patient's going to be fully heparinized, and we're going to do everything we can from a papaverin or distal vasodilation standpoint. And the trauma patient, we're kind of given TXA, we're given FFP. There's a lot of soft tissue yeah. and venous disruption. Um, so when do you? So I, that's why I'm perhaps a little little more liberal and getting a nice and, and they have vasospasm. So sometimes you can't get signals and you know, in an hour you're going to get called from the ICU because they can't get the signals that they feel happy with. 
I often get an angiogram in these patients simply to show radiographically that despite the fact that I they have basospasm and I can't get a great audio signal with a handheld Doppler, that they do have flow out. And, then, yeah. and, and it helps me feel better about if we can get them warmed up and the vasospasm broken, then they will return with their signals. What... What, what's your thought process? You've done actually some work on this area and thought about it perhaps more yeah. um, comprehensively than most. What's your thought about the use of angiography after repair? So I think, again, I think you start with the same algorithm. What's your physical exam? What's your Doppler? And then you make a decision about how comfortable you are with those simple steps, right? So there are clearly people who... Um, who say, listen, there's a great Doppler signal. I know what a great Doppler signal sounds like. I don't need to do anything else. I, I would only encourage, especially for the younger folks who end up listening in, I personally think your first 20 of anything, when you go into practice, you should do an angiogram at the end of the case. I think early in your career, angiography is a really important part of leaving the operating room. I do think at a certain point you start getting some, whether it's, uh, appropriate cavalier confidence or what at a certain point you start thinking do I really need to do this angiogram and I for me my completion study of choice is duplex by far and away whether I'm talking about atherosclerotic lesions or trauma lesions well I use it to look at a proximal anastomosis if there is one a distal anastomosis if there is one we look at it under B mode color and then I get velocities above below and then in the native distally and so when you start looking at those sort of things it's almost like feeling like you're doing an angiogram right so at the end of the day if I have reasonable signals and I've done my duplex which shows no evident flow limiting stenosis or technical defect from my reconstruction to the foot I feel pretty good about calling it a day right I don't necessarily feel the need to do an angiogram in general, I think as you get more facile with duplex, you can also look at something on duplex and say, well, I need to redo it without having to do an angiogram. I think angiogram, again, for us, if we're worried about soft tissue and we know they're going to need a flap, um, it's one thing for me to tell our plastic surgeon, well, I duplexed them and the AT is a great target for you. That's a really hard sell, right? I, yeah. I need to be able to show them an angiogram picture and they can look at it and say, oh, yeah, sure, that looks great. That's where we're going to sew to. So I, I, I believe in completion duplexes, the test of choice if you're fast all with doing it. I believe in completion angiogram if you're not, and especially early in anyone's career. Now, do you, you do those yourself or do you have the technician come in at the completion? No, we do, we do those ourselves. You know, these cases only happen at 3 in the morning, so the tech isn't really an option. But even in the middle of the day, we do it We do it for all of our carotids, our aortic work, our fem pops. We do it for everything. And so, when you like anything else, when you do it for everything, the team gets to become second nature with it you know in our room it plugs into the hybrid room on the big screen and stuff like that so everyone can see what's going on and you get really good at understanding what what means something what doesn't you know, and I think it's a, a topic for another podcast, but I think having those relationships with your vascular division, if you're dual trained like we are, uh, you really do need to practice in both fields so that you can seamlessly utilize the technologies and the, the relationships of, to benefit the trauma vascular patient. I, I really do think there's a significant strength to that, but that perhaps is a topic for another podcast. Um, let me ask you this. So 
after you get done with your vascular repair, what, uh, how do you follow these patients? This is another thing that I think is not well validated across the board. We all have our little approaches, uh, especially for extremity injuries. Do you just follow, if they got a good pulse, is that enough? Do you get a Doppler of the actual repair itself? Uh, just audio Doppler, duplex, CTA, and then when do you get these things? Yeah. So certainly in the first night, we're just following exam and Doppler like anyone would be. Um, we don't put um, pulse oxes on, although it's a reasonable idea. We don't do some of the things that plastics does with permanent um, Dopplers on their flaps, for example. And then, you know, for the most part, I really like to get a study before they leave the hospital. If it's a reasonable thing to do. It's important to remember that in a lot of these patients trying to get a duplex before they leave the hospital just hurts too much, right? Because of a fracture or an X fix that's in the way or something along those lines. But if possible, we like to get a duplex before they leave. If not, we see everybody back in two weeks. And then I usually will get there for assuming they're clinically doing fine. I like to get a surveillance duplex at three months. And then I like to get one every year. Now that's in a perfect world. That's easily the minority of these patients because a lot of them, like yourselves, they get referred in from outside institutions or a regional transfer center for trauma. So it's not like these patients are um, living right around the corner. And a lot of them just don't come back, right? There's, there, there is difficulty in getting a trauma population to um, listen to a, a good follow-up scheme. I think we do a pretty good job of this, but we'd be kidding ourselves if, if we said we got everyone in. We keep people on aspirin um, as soon as possible, and then I, I don't keep people on aspirin forever. If that first duplex looks good in three months, I stop their aspirins and just follow them clinically with the duplex every year if I can get it. Now, that's aspirin for, uh, I, I assume, reverse saphenous vein or primary repair stuff, but what about your autologous? So even, I, I like to have aspirin on board as a baby aspirin for any, any vascular trauma that underwent a reconstruction. Right. So whether it be artery or vein, whether it be PTFE or uh, native vein, whether it be end to end, I'd like to have a baby aspirin board. Without a doubt, if there's some even remote contraindication anywhere else in the body, that's a very low threshold to say no aspirin, especially if they had an end to end autologous. We, we wouldn't really push on that. Um, but any, you know, for the most part, most of these folks, especially the penetrating trauma patients, are isolated to the leg. They don't have a lot of systemic manifestations of trauma, and an aspirin's probably okay. Again, not as important if they've had a head bleed or something like that. Gotcha. Well, Robbie, this has been a goldmine. I always uh, come out of conversations with you feeling smarter, which is not hard for me because I'm not too bright to begin with, as you well know. But um, it, I've been about to say the same about you, Joe. Fair enough. It, uh, it's come time for our random questions. So are you prepared for your random questions, good sir? I, I don't know if I am, but I'm going to take a shot at all right. So, it, you know, as part of our jobs, we sometimes uh, do hard things as surgeons and physicians. I think, uh, you know, tibial repair at 3.30 in the morning probably constitutes one of those. Yet I am always so fascinated by, you know, just part of being a human. Um, not uh, we're, we're, There are going to be things we're not good at. And there are things we derive great displeasure from, and uh, particularly around the house. So what chores are, do you most hate doing around the house? That is an easy one. So to me, you know, vascular surgeons, we're all about technology, right? And technology really works for us. And we've made it work for us. I think it's crazy that there's a machine in my house which washes dishes, and yet I have to wash the dishes before putting them in said oh. machine. Oh, yeah. This is a, this is a hilariously weird concept to me. 
And so uh, washing the dishes, without a doubt. I'm happy to do it. It's my part of the bargain because my wife tends to make dinner uh, more than I do. But it's, it, it is a constant source of amazement to me that I literally have to do the job of the machine for it. Ravi, I'll go one up on you. My wife inspects the dishes before they go in the dishwasher after I wash them. And I don't pass inspection very often. <laughs> Apparently, so I, I I am completely on board with you. Um, I, I will, I, I'm glad to say my wife is, uh, leaves me alone when I do the dishes. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what kind of music are you into these days? We always listen to music and everything we do in the operating room. Vascular surgeons, at least for some of our elective stuff, have time to actually turn some tunes on. What are you listening yeah. to? So I, I I'm all over the place. I listen to everything like a lot of folks do. I don't listen to country. Um, the, you know, I don't mind it, but I just never got into it. Honestly, I think, especially lately with everything, everyone's looking for comfort music. And to me, like if we go in the operating room, 80s film soundtracks is almost definitely going on, right? Ghostbusters is probably the first song on, and then Back to the Future comes on after that. Really? And so it's just 80s and, and more and more even 70s, just... I guess what would be old stuff. And I have two young kids at home and I, I've gotten them very, they love listening to dad's age. Do they even, have they, did they even seen the movies like Ghostbusters that these soundtracks have come from? No, but I will tell you last Friday we watched never ending story. And so that's their favorite song right now. Uh, American classic, American classic. What, what is it about vascular injury specifically that kind of attracts you to these challenges? Yeah. So much like yourself, my first life was in a tra- as a trauma surgeon. I um, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon, and, and and honestly, for the reasons anyone does anything, I had good trauma mentors, which um, made me say that's who I want to be when I grow up. Uh, it became evident to me that the part of trauma that I was particularly drawn to was the vascular part, uh, for a variety of reasons. I I love the idea that if I leave the operating room and everything seems fine. Um, everything probably will be fine. And I didn't, and I know that sounds silly from a vascular standpoint, because certainly things can go down in a delayed fashion, but it was no source of frustration. It was an endless source of frustration to me to do a bowel anastomosis, which looked great and would leak seven days later, right? And, and even then, just understanding why it would leak was a challenging thing. I, I find that in vascular, most things have an explanation. You may not figure it out right away, but you will figure out why something happened. It is not. It is not arbitrary. It is not something that is outside your control. It is something that either you made a mistake on or it got infected, which, again, is a different type of mistake. But there's always something that you can fix or do better. And um, that appealed to me. It, it was... Um, I don't want to use the word demanding technically, but it was technically interesting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, not all, not everybody's crazy enough like you or I to do two fellowships after general surgery training. So what advice do you have for trauma surgeons who, who still want to be trauma surgeons and perhaps not do a vascular fellowship, but would like to improve their skill set in managing vascular injuries? Yeah. I think the key thing is exposure in both sense of the words. Learning your exposures is really important. Um, it is 90% of the case. Sewing is easy. Um, doing all that other stuff is easy. But learning prompt exposure is is the um, is the, the real key part. And I will use the word exposure a different way. Being around vascular surgeons who do this is really important. So, you know, the most important thing, if you're a first-day grad and you're a trauma surgeon and you haven't, you're not going to take on a major vascular trauma as your first uh, on your first night of call because that's just 
not necessarily a smart thing to do. But when the vascular surgeon, depending on where you are, if the vascular surgeon comes in and does the case, you sit there and you scrub with them. And um, sometimes you'd rather be sleeping or taking care of all the other patients who need something, but you got to get that exposure and you got to see it. And I think most of us are happy to say, well, this is how we set this up, you know, next time, see if you can get this far with it. And every single time you try to get a little bit further, right, to the point that you're calling someone and saying, I'm going to do this. I don't need your help, but I want to let you know. And then the next time you say, oh, last night I, I did this, this uh, vascular reconstruction. Can we talk about it? To the point that you're saying, well, I, I've done three or four over the last week and they've all gone well. Um, I don't think that any, even those of us that do this for a living, meaning both fellowships, I don't begrudge anyone doing their own vascular trauma, right? We don't have rules at Grady that say you have to call vascular for X, Y, and Z, and you are not allowed to call for A, B, and C. Rather, every single surgeon has their own comfort level, and that should be taken into account. Every single surgeon has their own level of busyness on a given um, trauma night, right? So someone who, quote, does their own vascular may not be able to do it because they have two trauma whipples going on. And I think vascular always serves as the backup. But I think maintaining that exposure as the trauma surgeon is the really important step in your own development. Yeah, I often, you know, just find that just have my presence. I don't even have to scrub per se, just reaffirm that what their thought processes are sound, their techniques sound, and um, being that supporting presence as somebody who's kind of a quote unquote expert as much as I'm ever going to be in vascular trauma is really reassuring, especially to the younger folks. And it's, it's really a matter of confidence and, um, and, and getting confident in your skill set and acquiring what you can. Well, Robbie, I, I tell you, I know you're a busy man, and I really do want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule today to chat with us. Uh, again, folks, this has been the Trauma Podcast. Feel free to consume the rest of our uh, offerings, any manner in which you consume podcasts. Uh, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or topics that you would like us to examine more closely or an expert that you'd like us to talk to about a specific topic, feel free to email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.